Revelation chapter 3. God's word written for you today. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess His name before my God and before His angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would give the life and light to our hearts that is your word. May your Spirit Seven spirits of God work in our heart, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Start with one of my most traumatizing experiences of all time. Not supposed to share those in the pulpit. Allowed a breach of etiquette every dozen years or so, I guess. So many of you know I did uh, youth ministry before coming here, and part of youth ministry was doing youth mission trips. I've been uh, to a number of different continents, a number of different countries, a number of different places. And one of the places that I have left the biggest part of me in behind uh, were my trips to Peru. Uh, those that have heard the stories know the joke behind that because I've been twice and gotten violently ill both times. There's probably 40 pounds of Michael still left in that country from my illness. One of those times particular, so the second trip, I knew that I had a propensity to be ill. <clears throat> and we had gone to one of the fancy restaurants in the town that we were staying at. It's a restaurant that knew how to cook for Westerners, a, new, a restaurant that didn't let the cats play in the kitchen and eat off the food before they served it, a restaurant that I knew would be okay. Talking with my students as I'm doing youth I was an intern, I guess, at the time, trying to help you know, equip them for their service in the Lord's church, and they served us the meal, and part of what they brought out were these gloriously beautiful uh, giant chicken legs, and they were fantastic. After eating yucky food for a number of days a week, it was nice to have something appealing. It's a beautiful piece of chicken. And I'm talking with a student right in front of me and we're having conversation and I'm trying to help stir him up to greater works of service. 
into obedience and I'm so excited for my meal and I grab my giant chicken leg and I take that first bite while we're talking and not really paying attention and I chew it and I swallow it and I look down at this glorious chicken that I'm about to eat the second bite of and the inside is entirely raw. Entirely raw. Like not, oh, maybe that might not be done like squishy raw, wrong color raw. The outside of the chicken was perfect. Skin crispy, all brown, looked perfect. Oh man, it's delightful. The inside, on the other hand, was not okay. The inside was almost death. The, you know, they talk about salmonella poisoning on the news. Like, it's no joke. Having had it three times, it's no joke. I was hallucinating in a matter of hours, and I lost 20 pounds in the next eight hours after that. No joke. The amazing thing was that it looked so good, but it was so bad. In fact, actually so violently ill, I still struggled to eat chicken on the bone because I've had salmonella twice from that of the three times. That was one of those great illustrations popping in my head as I was thinking about the church of Sardis because you have a church that on the outside looks so good. A church that if you were going to observe it just with human eyes, you would say, this is a church that's doing all right. Like, they're okay. Man, they're, they're, I'm sure they've got their foibles, right? That's how we say it, uh, to be nice today. Or we say, oh, bless their heart. Maybe they have, you know, they've blessed them. They've got a couple of issues, Maybe even go so far as to say the ultimate Christian one. Well, they're not perfect, but who of us are? But on the outside, they would look good. They would have looked very good. And again, interesting, another church, another town, another place, everyone that we've interacted with is wealthy. There's actually a reoccurring theme when we deal with the churches in Revelation. Thus far, none of them have been poor. None of the towns have been places of abject poverty. None of the towns have been places where you go, oh, I don't want to visit there. All of them were places of power or prestige, but always wealth. The church in Sardis was no different. A community that had extreme wealth in a place of extreme beauty. Built out on a a point with almost sheer cliffs on the edges with sheer walls attached to those overlooking the valley. The city of Sardis was glorious. Beautiful and lovely And at first blush, if you had gone to visit the church there, you probably would have thought the same of the church. A group of people that gather together to serve the Lord. I love thinking about this because you think about how many of the the churches that we're reading about were really about the same size as Christ Ridge. Have you ever think about that? I mean, about the same size as you think about, uh, was it last week, Thyatira? They think the population of Thyatira and Pergamum were both in the neighborhood of 200,000 people. So you're talking about effectively one church for all of Fort Mill and most of Rock Hill. Half of Rock Hill, I guess. 
That's probably, again, not that much different than we have today. It always makes me chuckle thinking about the church in Corinth. How many dysfunctions they have and thinking, again, there's probably not a large body. Maybe 150, 200 tops, maybe 40 or 50. Ooh, that's a lot of mess in 40 people. But you come to the church in, in Sardis and you have this church that, again, on, uh, by all outward metrics would seem to be doing well. We know the church in Sardis was probably planted in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s in church history. So we've had 30 to 40 years of church growth take place here. We're now again into the second generation of Christians living in this place. And the Lord begins to address them. He begins with what you would think, again, would be a very positive endorsement. Uh, Hopefully the, the words that would be encouraging as he gets to this church. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And that's there from chapter one, as all of the identifiers are to these letters. But specifically here, this is the capstone title that Jesus takes. Remembering that uh, the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, the personification of the churches, the seven spirits being the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit of God. So here Jesus begins by addressing himself as the, the one who has the Holy Spirit, the one who gives the Holy Spirit, the one who sees with the eyes of the Spirit and not the eyes of man. That's going to be important as he goes to address them because he begins by saying, I know your works. I can see them. I can see all that you're doing. I know what's going on. And again, by human metrics, you would say, well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's obvious. That's easy to do. We can see what a church is about. I mean, Christ Ridge, you can see what we're about, right? We not only have one church calendar, we have two. One on church social, one on our website. We have two calendars. You can see what's important to us. You can see how we spend our time. In January, when we present the budget, you can see how we spend our money. You can see what we do. And in fact, actually, the church in Sardis goes one step further. They've earned a reputation for how they spend their time and their energy and their money. You have the reputation of being alive. You have the reputation. People know you. They've heard of you. They know about you. And your reputation is one of sterling good works. You're that piece of chicken. Know how to cook for Westerners. Know how to make something delicious and on the outside, my goodness, it looks delightful. Problem though. You're dead. This is hard here in verse 1, the end of verse 1, because this, but you were dead that Jesus gives us, is not ultimately like a conditional statement. 
It's not a, a hinting at, it's not a, a might be, it's not a could be. It's talking about a church, a corporate body that has the reputation for being okay, but in reality is not. In reality, it's consumed from the inside out. In reality, it's gone. I'm thinking about, again, various things that just pop into my mind as illustrations. This is when I was a kid, my buddies and I used to go running around the fields after it rained like this. It was all nasty and gross and everything. And you give it a couple days and all the mushrooms would start growing up and we'd go out and play in the woods. And one of the great games was to just run, soccer players, all of us, and see how far you could kick the mushrooms. And they were great because most of them, you get this kind of size and they'd all be all white and they would just kind of, you know. Every once in a while, though, you would get one of those awful ones that looks really good on the outside, but is filled with like the black moldy spores on the inside. So when you ran up and kicked it, instead of it just blowing apart and going flying out, it just covered you in just gunk. Don't breathe it. Don't breathe it. Looked fine. Looked like everything else. Looked like fun. Filled with death. The question we have when we go to the church of Sardis here, interestingly, is that Jesus doesn't exactly tell us what the problem is that has led to that. He tells us the condition. He tells us that they are dead, but he's not fully explained to us how we got from point A, church planted to do well, to point B, oh no, it's dead or dying, and maybe there are some okay. In fact, he doesn't actually even give us a full picture of what exactly is going on. But, if we kind of read between the lines, I think we can get enough of an understanding as what's happening in Sardis and maybe something useful for us. First, as we've seen, they have this appearance of being good, but the the inside is corrupt. What we're talking about here is not that kind of evil that is so overtly clear that everybody would know it. Well, we're not, we're not talking about the church of Corinth here, where you come into church, you know, and, and get ready to have communion, and the rich people are getting hammered in the back, and they won't share their uh, food with the poor people up front, and they're ostracizing each other, and then you find out one dude is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and all kinds of disasters, and you know, what on earth is happening? We're not talking about that. We're talking about a church that looks good. A church that sounds good. A church that smells good. A church that seems good. All right, and that's step one of the problem. Let's see what else we can find. Verse two, wake up, remain, strengthen, remains, blah, blah, blah. I have not found your works complete. In the sight of God, he, he here, uh, Jesus references back to Daniel with, uh, you know, the writing on the wall, uh, your works have been weighed and been found wanting. Meaning they're doing things to serve the Lord, but there's something not right with what they're doing. 
They're doing things in the name of God, but those things aren't enough. Something is lacking. It would maybe draw to mind as we think about in the New Testament church, uh, think about uh, that great illustration of, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We did all of these good works in your name. What's Jesus' response? Be gone, I never knew you. You did all of these things in my name, you thought. You did all of this service in my name, you thought. You did all of these things to please me, you thought. But something was missing. Something was missing. We see in verse 4 that there's uh, one step further in the problem. It's not just that their outsides look good and the inside is dead. It's not just that their works have been done but aren't full, aren't complete, that there's something missing. But there's actually even something greater, a, a real and lingering corruption in Sardis. I mean, what a sobering sentence verse 4 is. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Garments is uh, usually used in apocalyptic literature like this, uh, not to talk about actual clothing, but to talk about works, lifestyle, fullness of person, their record before God. So when it talks about them being clothed in white garments later in the book of Revelation, it's not that they're actually getting to wear white clothes and, you know, I need to actually exchange my corduroy jacket for a white leisure suit, Um, but instead that God is clothing his people with a perfect record. Here we're finding out step three in Sardis is this actual moral corruption and uncleanness that has snuck in. And pervaded the church. And I think this is where we begin to see what's actually happened in the church of Sardis. The church is planted and planted, like I said, 30, 35, 40 years earlier. And the first generation did very well. The church grew, it established, it grew strong. Remembering all seven of these churches are not kind of fringe churches in the region. These are the postal routes, these are the big cities, and these would be the churches of note. This church is actually so strong, they've built a reputation for themselves in the region. The problem is... As time has passed... And the first generation has died off and the second generation has come in and come to power. Their focus has drifted just a little. It's drifted away from that message that they started with. That free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ that sins could be forgiven. And all you had to do was receive them. 
It's, it's drifted away from that free offer of the gospel that Christ died on the cross for his people. All you have to do is receive his work and believe. And I suspect that it's been replaced with a cultural Christianity. You see, there's actually one thing not mentioned in the church of Sardis that's been mentioned pretty much everywhere else. Everywhere else, the church has behaved like the church, and they've been immediately persecuted for it. Sardis hasn't, though. Sardis has behaved in a way that looks good, and it seems good, and it's maybe socially acceptable. But they've compromised their Christianity. And because they've compromised their Christianity, they've compromised the message. And when they've compromised the message, well, guess what? It's a whole lot easier to maintain your social standing, your cultural cachet, your relationship with the world. And the problem is, is there's a byproduct to that. That moral compromise, we would say, well, I mean, it's not good, right? I mean, I understand that. It's, it's not good. We don't want a church that compromises. But it's not the worst thing, is it? That's intriguing. This is actually the only place we've seen yet out of all these letters where Jesus says, no, your church is dead. Your compromise has compromised the gospel. It's compromised the actions and behaviors of your people. Though you look good by the cultural standards of the day, your church is dead. And as I've been talking about these churches, as we've been going through them, I can't help but again think of the American church. To think about a church that began very well. I mean, you want to study church history and enjoy a beautiful part of church history. Go back and study those that came and landed on these shores. Go back and read of John Winthrop and John Cotton and Cotton Mather and all of the early founding fathers of the faith. Go read of early Presbyterianism. Francis McAmey and others. Go and read of the the great theologians of the North and the South. The church was a beautiful and lovely thing on these great shores. But you do have to wonder... Over the 10, 11 generations? Have we compromised so much that this is our letter? That this is our letter that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. It's intriguing because I suspect that the conservative pockets of the church around the globe are actually beginning to figure out this is America. 
This is the American church as you could certainly ask Dwight and Dorothy and others, but <clears throat> we're beginning to watch the number of missionaries coming, increasing, as we're watching the number of missionaries going, decreasing. As the rest of the church and the rest of the world is beginning to realize this needs to be a receiving nation, not a sending nation. We have the reputation of being alive. We have the reputation of being a strong and healthy and powerful and vibrant church. But inside... There's a problem. I suspect also for the church of Sardis, we're going to see this in a moment with the solution. They've compromised the gospel in such a way that it's no longer easily discernible to, to see the path of salvation there. It's no longer easy to walk into the church and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think, well, I mean, that's not the American church. But is it? I mean, go look at any of the statistics on how many Christians today profess that the prosperity gospel is the truth. You realize of those that claim the name of Christ, those that hold to the prosperity gospel is well over half in the United States of America. Go look at the questions from the Barna group and others about how many believe in the resurrection, believe in the divinity of Jesus, believe in the truth of the Bible, believe that God knows what he's talking about when he addresses human sexuality or identity issues. And suddenly this passage gets a little bit more teeth when it comes to deal with us. You have the reputation of being alive. You, American church, have given away more money than any other church in human history. You've published more Christian books than any other church in human history. You've produced more external good works, things that could be measured than anybody in human history. But where's the gospel? <clears throat> Where is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners? And if I believe and receive that, my life can be changed. Where is the good news that once I am changed, his burden is easy, his yoke is light, and I'm called to a life of self-denial? Take up my cross and follow him. I think it's interesting what Jesus poses a solution to this church. Recognizing the corruption that resides in their midst, the corruption that resides in their soul. It's intriguing what he calls them to. Verse 2, wake up. That should read 
more powerfully, but I don't have the voice to do so. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. This call would have had a particular sting to the church in Sardis because of Sardis's history. As I mentioned, Sardis was out on a point with sheer sides and sheer walls, and it was believed that it was an unconquerable city. Much much like the Titanic, it's unsinkable. Well, you know, if anybody claims to be unsinkable, what will happen? It'll sink. And if they claim to be unconquerable, what will they be? Conquered. In fact, actually, out of all these places, they're the ones that are conquered the most. The city that thinks they're unconquerable because they didn't realize something. That though the walls were almost sheer, they were made badly. So there were handholds everywhere. So they would have soldiers along the top of the wall and thought, we're safe, we're fine, we cannot be invaded because no one can get over the walls. In fact, actually, right before they were invaded the second time, one of the soldiers was looking over the edge and dropped his helmet. Oh, no. Gets down in trouble, goes hoofing it down. You can imagine his boss screaming at him, what are you doing? Gets out the gate, goes around to the wall, gets his helmet. And you know what? Can't be bothered to go back. So he climbs all the way back to his post. And they're like, huh? I didn't know that was possible. You're not supposed to be able to climb these walls. They are impregnable. We're safe. But yet nobody bothers to watch. And shortly after that, the city would be invaded again and conquered again. You actually get to see what Jesus is calling them to, is to wake up and to be watchful, to be on guard, because the tide of the culture always pushes you the wrong direction. It's like trying to ford a river. Have you ever done that where you you start on one side of the creek or the river, big one particularly, and try to walk to the other side? If you want to, you're starting here, and you want to get there, you never aim there, do you? You aim upstream, or you start upstream, because you know the water's going to push you down. The current's going to take you away, and the church in Sardis has forgotten about the current of culture. The church in Sardis has forgotten about the pull of the pleasures of this world. So Jesus calls them to wake up and to remember what's going on. I love that. Verse 3, he's calling them to go back and to remember, to go back to the past. This is actually one of the ways that I think we can see how unhealthy the American church is currently. We have no regard for the church prior to 10 years ago. Maybe 30 years ago tops. We've stopped loving the old ways. We love the new ways. And you can pretty much guarantee in church history, anytime you begin to love the new ways, it always destroys the church. God calls them to go back and remember, to remember the old way, to remember the old gospel, to remember the old truth, to go back to how things started. And to repent. Well, that's simple enough. 
simple enough to go back and to remember the old gospel, to go back and remember the way things used to be. Lord Jesus is wise. He understands, though, that people don't change easily. We're creatures of habit. I mean, honestly, how many of you sit in the same seats every single Sunday? The biggest upset we've had in the church was when we angled the aisle from the center to to the side. Where's my chair I've been sitting in for eight years? We're creatures of habit. We don't change easily. It requires incentive. You know, we have a new puppy at our house. He's nine weeks old now. He is adorable and obnoxious because he does not want to behave at all. Wants to mark his territory, wants to bite wants to chew your shoes, wants to do all of the obnoxious things that make them so adorable. Doesn't want to come to you, wants to take his toys and run from you. And it's intriguing all of the ways that you train a dog, the same ways that Jesus interacts with the church, is to provide incentive to behave. Incentive to be transformed, incentive to be different, incentive to come when you're called and not to go to the bathroom on the carpet. Jesus here provides two kind of different emphases in his incentives for the church. Why to change? First, remember and repent. Verse 3, if you do not, judgment comes. If you don't change, judgment comes. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Jesus is marvelous here in even how he explains the coming judgment because he uses the verbiage of the end times judgment, but not the grammar. So it sounds like he's speaking about the end times, like you have to wake up and change because the second coming is going to happen. But that's not what he means. You have to wake up and change because as we've seen with the churches previous, he can snuff out the light. He can take that church away. He can close it down. This year for Thanksgiving, we shared the Belcher House Thanksgiving with uh, a bunch of folks from England and from Ireland, which was just a delicious irony to have Thanksgiving with the Brits. Uh, there's something just wonderfully amusing about that. And I asked one of the gentlemen there, what's it like sharing an American holiday that's kind of obnoxious to you guys? His answer was really wise. He said, it's marvelous because it reminds me of the rise and fall of nations and no empire stands forever. Well, that was a little bit heavier than I was expecting at Thanksgiving lunch. (laughs) Pass the potatoes, please. 
But he's actually, he's got the scriptures right. God does not guarantee that a church will stay alive in a nation. God does not guarantee that the American church is the end-all and be-all of Christianity. In fact, we absolutely know it's not, though we treat it that way. It is time for the American church to repent, to return to the old ways, for we do not know when our time will be up. We do not know when Jesus will come against the American church. And you say, well, Michael, that's a bit harsh. I mean, that's a bit strong. Yes, but I study church history. How about the church in Germany? The church in England? The church in Scotland? The church in Wales? The church in the Netherlands? How about any of the churches in Europe? Where are they now? Where are they now? Fifteen years ago, I was in Heidelberg. Went to a used bookstore and asked for a copy of the Heidelberg Catechism in Heidelberg. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Never heard of it. Maybe one of the best documents ever written by humans ever. No idea. Their church is gone. I love that he holds the negative to remind us. For those of us that are incentivized well by that sharp push, he gives that. For those that are not, he gives the warm promises. For those... Be reminded there are still some in Sardis that are good. There are still some that love the Lord Jesus. People who have not compromised. People who have not soiled their garments. And those that have not compromised, that have not lost the gospel. Those that have not lost that godly Christian piety, that holiness, that way of life that is different, that is unique, that is absolutely peculiar. For those, they will walk with Christ. In purity, for they are worthy. I love that. This is an idea that I think in reform circles, a lot of times we don't really get captured well. That Jesus himself here is not saying that he is worthy. That those that stay strong in the end, they are worthy. I love that. How kind our God is to say, you made it. You belong. You're worthy. Because Jesus has changed you and the Spirit's at work in you. Another promise here, verse 5, to the one that does make it to the end. Their name will be in the book of life forever. It cannot be removed. This again is the idea of legal record. It can't be changed. It cannot be altered they will receive life forever. The negative impending judgment, the positive promises of purity and of life and blessing and at the crux of it all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So what do we do with this? How do we put this into practice? How do we live differently in light of the church of Sardis? Well, part of what I've been wanting to get at with all seven of these letters, and I think largely why I wanted to get to this section for us to think about, is all of these confront this idea of a social Christianity. They confront the idea of, I am a social Christian. And say, social Christians are what end up in judgment, not what end up in grace. The Church of Sardis is that. They're, they're, they're social Christians, those that have the reputation for Christianity. They're in the proximity of the gospel, but they do not believe it. And again, I can't help but grieve for our community. I mean, think about how many churches we have in Fort Mill. And this morning, how many of these people will not hear the gospel? That Jesus forgives sins, not based on your works, but based on his. I think it's important that we do not grow lazy, that we do not grow sluggish, that we don't grow in our compromise and become those social Christians that live good lives, that make good money, that eat good food, that enjoy good pleasures, and never, ever feel challenged by the gospel of Jesus Christ or those that don't know it and perish around us. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, forgive us for our sins. There are many. Fill us with your spirit, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.